The Lord be with you. Apparently I'm having some mic issues again. So Pastor Schumacher and I had noticed um, people are starting to fall asleep a lot during the sermons. And so we had the trustees turn off the heater today to keep people awake, if you noticed. No, apparently I had some boilers out or something and for, you know, by the time the emergency guys get here and get it, if they were to fix it today, it wouldn't be warm until like five o'clock this afternoon. So why bother paying the extra $150 emergency, whatever. So if you haven't gone to church yet, keep wearing your coat when you go in. <laughs> if you didn't grab a Bible, there's a few Bibles left on the, the stand in the back there. Otherwise, uh, try to encourage you to bring your own so you can write in the margins. Uh, so it's, it's fun to write in your Bible because usually uh, like the stuff that you write in your Bible, it, it refl- it's fun to like look back on it when you're like, like when I was in high school, for example, I had the old Concordia um, NIV self-study and I was, you know, I was going to a Southern Baptist high school and, you know, working out a lot of stuff in my mind. So I was writing stuff in the margin. When I go back and look at the Bible now, I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> Hope nobody sees this. So be careful what you write in your Bible on the one hand. On, on the other hand, it's kind of cool too to like, uh, my, my grandmother, after she died, they gave me her Bible. It's like classic. Oh, you're, he's a pastor. Give him grandma's Bible. So I'm, I'm like going through and looking at the stuff that she underlined and wrote in the margin. That's kind of cool too. So just keep in mind, those are fun things you can do. And uh, in this day and age, unfortunately, like with, with our youth, our youth were all like, oh, pastor, we don't need the Bible yet. We, got the, we have the app. I'm like, well, turn off your app and get the Bible. This is like, use the actual, use the thing. So if you got one at home, you never remember to bring it, start trying to, if you, if you don't get a chance to open it, this gives you an excuse to bring it and start, like the first time you open it and you hear that crack in the binding, that's how you know you're not using it enough. <laughs> so get working through. Okay, uh, transfiguration today, Luke 9 starting with verse 28. So we've kind of got the running start up to, 20, uh, th- up to Luke 9. Uh, toward the end of Luke 9, there's a, there's a shift. As Jesus comes off the mountain of transfiguration, he sets his face toward the cross. And there's a couple of key themes that we're gonna get in all of the teachings of Jesus in today's, in today's study. It's this disconnect between, or, or maybe a... Uh, this confusion that's happening with the disciples. And it started what we saw last week when, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they're like, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And then uh, Peter says famously, you are the Christ. And then Matthew records how Jesus uh, then says, he goes on to talk about his cross. And then Peter pulls him aside and says, no, Lord, not you, that's not how you're a Messiah. You can't suffer and die. And Jesus is saying, no, what it means for him to be the Christ is for him to suffer and die for the sake of his people. So we have to, we have to always understand Jesus as Christ, as one who suffers and dies for his people. But the disciples, obviously, in their defense, they haven't seen the cross. We're, we have the luxury of being on this side of the cross and we can be like, oh, those disciples just didn't get it. We would have gotten it. <laughs> no. Uh, but there, there, there's this mis, 
interpretation of Jesus as the Christ as this Messiah of power, like think military conquest. And that confusion is rampant in the latter half of, of Luke 9, including in the transfiguration itself. So we're on the heels of Jesus has just said he's the Christ. And then he goes on to explain how he's going to have to suffer and die. And then Jesus goes on to say just before this and uh, the previous verses to, to the transfiguration, he talks about uh, taking up your cross to be a disciple, is to take up your cross and follow him. So he's gonna have to face the cross. And ultimately those who follow him will have this life of, of self-sacrifice under the cross as well. Then the transfiguration, verse 28 of chapter nine. Now about eight days after these sayings, which sayings? Always, you always wanna go back and check those because those are usually significant. These sayings would be him talking about the cross his own cross and also the cross for his people. That's significant context of what's about to happen. Eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. Uh, eight days, it's about eight days. So usually like the word about is, is interesting here because it could, sometimes it'll say two days later or the next day, it's pretty clear, but about eight days gives us the sense that what's most important here is eight days. There's a reason why he's just, he wanted to get to eight for some reason. And the commentators, especially our own, like uh, Dr. Just at Fort Wayne Seminary, he's really big on the eighth day and really not just him, but all of historic Christianity. Like if you go over to Europe, maybe it's, some uh, American like big churches that have like a big baptismal, like, I call it a big honking baptismal font in the narthex or something. There'll be, how many sides will those baptismal fonts have? Eight sides. St. John's Wheaton has it? Uh, that would make sense. So the, this connection with eighth, the eighth day and baptism gets after this idea of new life, new creation. So creation was made in, creation in, in seven days. And the eighth day is the first day of living in that creation. Jesus himself was resurrected on the eighth day. So it's Sunday. We think of the sun, Sunday as it's the first day of the week, Sunday. Well, it is Sunday, but in the sense also it's after seven days, it's the first, the first day of the next week, the eighth day of, the new, of this new creation, of this new life. So the church is, the New Testament church makes, a, makes a, uh, an attempt to cast the symbolism of eight days in their churches, especially related to baptism regarding our new creation, how we have new life with Christ. We're baptized into the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we have new life in Jesus. And so that, that's what the, eight, the eighth day. So it's interesting here, he bring up this eighth day as he's about to start talking about his crucifixion yet again, coming up here in the, in the uh, transfiguration. He took with him Peter, John, and James. This is interesting too. You notice how whenever you hear Peter, John, and James, you usually order differently, isn't it? It's usually what? Peter, James, and John. And so it's fair to ask, maybe, maybe like Luke just was as he, was, as he was getting this account from people, or was it significant? Was it significant when he ordered these names? Um, and some suppose, like when you look at Acts, 
Remember, Luke wrote Acts as well. Like the book of Acts is Luke part two. And in Acts, um, Peter and John are going, usually going together in a lot of places in the ministry. James is the first, um, the first apostle to be martyred. He's not the first Christian martyr. That was Stephen. But James was the first uh, of the apostles. And in fact, Herod kills him in, I think, Acts 12. But uh, so Peter and John are together from Luke's standpoint. So as Luke's, remember Luke's the investigator? He's, he wasn't there at the resurrection. So he's going around and asking all the disciples and the apostles and taking all these accounts together and he's recording these things. And so he's, in his context, Peter and John are together. So he puts them, Peter and John and James went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, now pause there. This is, we've been studying, especially when we were studying Luke earlier this year. And as you can kind of think back, if you maybe remember, Jesus seems to always be praying. He's always going off. Now there's a couple of different ways that Jesus can teach us the importance of prayer. One, he could say, prayer is important, you should do it. And that's not bad. He, in fact, he does do this. When you pray, pray thus, our Father who art in heaven, right? But we also learn a lot that Jesus, God in the flesh himself, has this high prioritization of prayer within his own life, this high value of prayer. And so we're learning, we learn from Jesus just as the example that he sets of his, of his, uh, his, pray, his praying and his high view of prayer. Um, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So he's up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. His face changes. The Greek word for his face was altered. The Greek is heteros. We think heter, hetero, different. His face was different. As like when I go to, every time I go down to Mississippi and it, Seth, you look, your face looks different. <laughs> As a bishop, imagine the disciples thinking that. They probably weren't from Mississippi. His face was altered and it was brilliant. We'll come back to that. His clothing became dazzling white. That same phraseology of dazzling, dazzling white is used also to describe the two, in Luke's account, the two angels at the resurrection of Jesus. Remember when, the, when Mary goes in, you have the two angels standing on either end of where Jesus had been laid and their clothes is, are dazzling white. So we're getting this like, whenever heaven is opened up, we're getting this reflection of heaven with this dazzling whiteness, whatever that means. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, a, lot is, a lot is crammed in this verse. We could talk the rest of the time, but uh, what's the significance of Moses and Elijah? Let's start with Moses. What's Moses? He's, he's the law. So yeah, so the law, with, with Moses and Elijah together, we get, the, we get the law and the prophets. Moses as symbolizing this, uh, the summary of the Old Testament law, as we have the, the Ten Commandments given in, where? Exodus 20. And then 
in Deuteronomy is the second time you get, I think Deuteronomy five or six, but Deuteronomy, it comes from the Greek word deutero, which is second, namos, law. So the second time the law is given, repeated, is in Deuteronomy. It's, how it gets, it's where it gets its name. So in case you're ever on Jeopardy, now you'll know. Uh, so Moses gives the law. He's also famously spoken of in Deuteronomy 18 as, remember how Moses says, a prophet, there will be a prophet like me that rises among you. This foretelling of Christ in Deuteronomy 18. So now we get Jesus as the fulfillment of that prophecy of Moses. And then also Elijah. Elijah the prophet spoken of at the end of Malachi is this, Elijah will come before you to prepare my way. Now, John the Baptist fulfills that. John the Baptist is the Elijah, uh, the fulfillment of that prophecy. But Elijah is certainly the most famous of the prophets. And they're listed there together. Um, were they wearing name tags? Hi, I'm Moses. <laughs> From Thrivent. <laughs> and it's peeling off because they never really work effectively. Uh, but in heaven they will, so it's stuck all the way. No, so the, this is an important picture. In fact, if you're able to, uh, to come to the, the, or watch the Heaven Conference with Pastor Melius a few weeks ago, um, this is one of those places where we get a glimpse. Uh, it's uh, descriptive of heaven, and it informs our understanding of heaven as in contrast to what we learn from um, Patrick Swayze's movie Ghost, where remember like when he starts to go to heaven, it's like these like shadowy figures, kind of these cloudy, disembodied figures. Well, no, heaven is, that's kind of this Gnostic spiritual idea of heaven, which is not what the biblical view of heaven is. Now, it is confusion of what, what heaven is now. Again, Pastor Amelia has talked about, you get the, the current heaven, but then also the new heaven and the new earth, which is really the eternal heaven. But there's, that's heaven after Christ returns. But right now, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because like my grandma, her, she's with Jesus. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And yet her body is in the ground of her cemetery in Jackson, Mississippi, right? So we're trying to picture what, what's grandma look like now? Well, maybe she's just floating around. Ah, oh, but that's not, that's not the biblical view of heaven when you, when you get the sense that when John is given a glimpse of heaven, people, they, he sees people wearing robes on their bodies and they're crying out with a voice and they're holding palm branches with hands. So there's this bodyment in heaven and yet how does that work with the body still on the ground? I don't know, we just, we're just confessing what the scripture is telling us. In some way we have some kind of, it seems that we have some kind of a body or at least manifestation of that in the, in, in the pre-resurrection of Christ, or pre-return of Christ, heaven. But this is one of the big ones too, because Moses and Elijah show up. Maybe they were like the way Obi-Wan Kenobi would kind of show up, uh, or like this hologram of help, help me, Obi-Wan, you're my, you're my only hope. No one wants a Star Wars around here? Come on. <laughs> Maybe Moses, yeah, that's right. 
Dennis is suggesting that maybe Moses was holding the Ten Commandments everywhere he went. No, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that the easiest thing to, to, to say here would be, well, who is writing this account? Luke, how did he get this account? He's asking Peter, James, and John when he's doing his detailed detective work. And is it possible that, that Peter, James, and John asked Jesus? Yes, but it's even more than that because Peter, James, and John notice, recognize it, they recognize that it's Moses and Elijah. Sorry to get ahead of ourselves here, but later on he's going to say, let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So Peter recognized that it was Moses and Elijah, and we don't know how. Some commentators speculate that in heaven we are the, we are the fullness of ourselves, which is like, I'm, I'll be most, I'll be so, I'll be full of my Sethness, and you'll just be able to identify. And I just don't think that's, I don't think that's true, because, again, using like Pastor Melius's view of, of heaven, it's like. Heaven is everything that we enjoy about this world minus the impact of sin. So when I first meet someone, do I know who they are if I haven't met them before? No. Is that sinful? No. So part of, part of the, the human growth is just learning, learning who people are. So it's not that we'll just know, we'll get to heaven and we'll know who everybody is and everyone's going to be 30 years old or something like that, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't have those kind of pictures, but we, don't, we certainly don't have the certainty that we're just going to know. Although some of that is, that, that view of heaven is drawn maybe from this text, that they just knew it was Moses and Elijah somehow. I don't know, speculation. Yes, ma'am. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. And also, whenever, when Jesus comes uh, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, when he's talking, he's on the road to Emmaus on Easter, it's getting to be toward evening on that first Easter evening. And he runs into those two disciples and they're like, they're all bummed out um, because the guy they thought was going to be the savior died. And then Jesus, it says, goes on to to show them how all the Old Testament, the Moses and the prophets, were testifying about him. So this picture of the entire Old Testament is about, it's pointing toward and leading up to Jesus. And that's helpful for us, I think especially as those New Testament Christians, us, who benefit from the New Testament, that lays out the gospel so clearly for us. But when you're reading the gospels, when you're reading the New Testament, and it says, and it refers to the Bible, what's it referring to? When it refers to the scriptures, when it refers to the word of God, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans, we usually think, okay, that means John 3.16 is going to be the best mechanism by which the gospel is going to be preached. And that does make sense in a way. But when Paul is writing Romans 10, there is no New Testament. So when Paul writes Romans 10, he's talking about the Old Testament, which is all talking about Jesus. 
And that all the New Testament that we enjoy is, is really just fleshing that out for us. Now, the, one of the biggest tragedies maybe in, in uh, American, like m- modern American Lutheranism, to pick on Lutherans, because I'm not sure about other churches, but the, if you remember the old TLH, if you're like old school Lutheran, they had the, the, old, the, old, the first translation into English Bible, the lectionary, that is those readings that we, that we use every Sunday, by the way, if you're ever wondering, like, why these readings? There's so much going on in the world. Why did pastor pick these readings today? Well, a pastor didn't pick the readings. Every Sunday is a different, it's kind of prescribed readings according to the church year. And that's all like gear, it's, it's leading up to following like the life of Jesus right now. Next Sunday, Palm Sunday, the Sunday as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Holy Week. The following Sunday is Easter, right? Um, so when, when, when it's also important to, I like to point that out in the pulpit when it's a, like a very uncomfortable gospel lesson or something. You have to say, this wasn't my idea. I'd rather not talk about this, but it's good. Um, but the, that, the lectionary that was in that early hymnal had the Old Testament reading in there as an option. So a lot of American Lutheran churches in the 20th, early 20th century didn't even have an Old Testament reading. So for us, we think, okay, the reading, Old Testament lesson, epistle lesson, gospel lesson. But unfortunately, the, the Old Testament just stopped being read in a lot of churches. Anybody grow up, did anyone grow up in a church that didn't read the Old Testament? Yeah, so it's not... It's not, not widespread, but it's certainly, certainly a thing. And that's not bad. And it, it makes sense, too, that we're like, you know, sometimes you read the Old Testament, it's, it, there's some unclearness there that seems to be a lot clearer in the New Testament. But we, we don't want to forget that ultimately Moses and Elijah, the, the Old Testament is, it's ultimately preaching Christ. And if we don't see it, it's not the Bible's fault, it's ours. So Moses and Elijah appeared in glory. What does that mean? I was thinking that that, uh, when we were singing the the Sanctus, heaven and earth are full of your glory. What does it mean for Moses and Elijah to appear in glory? What does that mean? The glory of God. Yeah, but... What does it look like? In the Old Testament, the, the glory of God is the kavod Yahweh, the glory of God. And I always remember in uh, Pentateuch 1, which is the first Old Testament class you have to take, we had Walter A. Meyer III, and he was translating, we were, we we're working through the Hebrew translation and something about the kavod Yahweh, the glory of Yahweh. And somebody asks, what is that? What is the glory of God? If you see the glory of God, what is it? And he says, well, it's like a really bright light. <laughs> in Fort Wayne, next to the seminary, there's this nightclub called Pierre's. We called it Dirty Peas. <laughs> Out in the front of Dirty Peas, there is this one of these like major lights that spins around at night and casts those major lights in the sky. So you can see it from all around. And every time we'd see it, hey, look, the Kavod Yahweh. <laughs> the glory of God, the bright light. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't say it's a bright light, so it's trying to describe, it's trying to describe this, what it, what it would be like if heaven is being reflected 
on earth. That's usually it, right? So it's the angels appear uh, before the shepherds on that first Christmas Eve, and they appear, the glory of God shone around them, shone, shined, and they were terrified. When Moses is in the, is in the uh, tabernacle or when he comes into the presence of God in the little tent there in the wilderness, his face would be glowing. So there's a sense of whenever people are in this heavenly presence of God, there is something nuclear <laughs> of this shining eminence. And so we see it with the angels. We see it with the clothes of Jesus. We see it with uh, Moses and Elijah who are in this glory and they're dazzling as well. Yeah, Mike. I was wondering, could it also be maybe Moses and Elijah being post-resurrection version of themselves? That seeing themselves, they're seeing Moses and Elijah in the perfection that's going to come for us after the second coming? I mean, I, I think that's a, it's fair to kind of guess that. Because the problem is we're, tr we're trying to we're trying to draw conclusions that maybe we shouldn't, and I, I started us down that road, trying to draw heavenly conclusions. Yeah, so Moses and Elijah are there and they seem to be embodied and they seem to be glowing. So Mike's suggesting maybe that's a picture of what we'll kind of be like, but that would mean that like right now when we go to heaven, our bodies are on the ground, are we gonna be like Moses and Elijah? Um, or is this a picture of what it's like after Jesus returns? Well, that, that wouldn't be the case because And Moses, I mean, no one knows where Moses was buried. Moses is kind of like, they, they, uh, he went off to the top of a mountain. Interesting how Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible and the end there, at the end of, who, in the book that Moses wrote, he recorded his own death. So some speculate he either wrote it knowing it was gonna happen or that was added later by somebody else, but that's a kind of a bummer prophecy to receive. I got good news and bad news. And bad news. <laughs> All right. Um, and they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now, that's a terrible translation. I hate that it did this. The departure there is the Greek word exodus. Now, we, we talked about this more in the earlier part of Luke. There's all these connections happening between Luke, or, sorry, between the Exodus event and the Gospel of Luke. There's all these symbolism stuff, like with the wilderness, when you think back to Jesus in the wilderness, uh, the wandering, the 40 days of 40 years of wandering, 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness and all this. We get all these connections with Exodus. So what's really helpful here is to, this is one of those places where you can certainly write in your Bibles, Exodus. In fact, you could write over the word departure if you wanted. Um, Exodus is the better, the better rendering there because that's the Greek word, hexodos, which, which he was of. Now, what is his exodus? Well, as a side note here, it's important because it, referring to this moment as the exodus or this thing as the exodus is going to show us a lot of meaning of what the first exodus was about, by the way. But which exodus is it talking about? His departure, his exodus, What's it referring to? Fortunately, Luke doesn't make us too, do too much guessing because he says his departure, which he was about to fulfill or accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Well, what is he about to fulfill and accomplish in Jerusalem? His death, resurrection, and ascension. So that, that picture of what's about to occur is his exodus. And that's what they're talking about. So Jesus is there, heaven unzips. I always like to picture it that way. It's just like this, because heaven isn't like, if you go past Mars, hang a left. No, that's how you get to, uh, what's that Peter Pan? Second star to the left past, what is it? Yeah, second star to the right, yeah. So like this, it's not, if we, because we've been in space, we know heaven is outside of this space and time. So it's impossible for us to comprehend. But in that way, we can also understand heaven as being here. Now that's a hard thing for us to fathom, but it's helpful when we get into like angelology, how angels, especially the language of guardian angels, how guardian angels are around, demons are around. Anyway, so Moses and Elijah, it's like Jesus goes, Zoop, and Moses and Elijah step out and he's talking to him there on the top of the mountain about talking about his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, Peter, obviously the main one, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. They're always sleeping. If the, if the disciples were depicted as the seven dwarves, they would be sleepy and sometimes dopey. And, and is there a bitter one? Who's the angry one? Grumpy. Uh, sometimes grumpy. And that comes up here. They're always fighting about who's the greatest. Um, so they're heavy with sleep. Now, some have proposed, so what we'll, we'll find out here at the end of this section that on verse 37, it says, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. So some suppose that it was late. It was getting into the evening and they're on top of a mountain. So they just, they just stayed there. And since it was evening, they might've just been sleepy. And in their defense, when we associate, especially in our, like the, the, the age of electricity, when the sun goes down, like we'd go inside to turn the lights on. It's not sundown is bedtime, but if you're in a era when sundown is like, okay, the main light is gone. What else am I going to do but go to sleep? And then as soon as the sun comes up, you're already awake because you've been asleep for like nine hours already, right? So you're, you're easy to get up at four o'clock in the morning and get going with your day. So it's, it's possible that it was getting to be toward evening and they were just sleepy, um, maybe it was a long prayer. Uh, Peter Scarrett Seminary suggests that this is one of the, the effects of being in the glory, uh, in, being in the presence of the glory of God. I think that's not maybe a bad, it's not a bad idea. So like, I'll tell you, uh, I, I, have, I have an easy job in some senses. Like on Sunday morning, we, we, we've already done the sermon. It's written. So I just show up and read the thing. Try not to mess up. I follow the liturgy, but there's something about being in front of you people and then talking to you individually and like something psychological that Sunday afternoon hits and I just, I don't wanna take a nap, I have to. <laughs> I'll try to stay awake and then I'll wake up on the, on the ground with children throwing stuff at me. It just, I fall asleep. Something about just being this, in the presence of a lot of people has this exhausting impact on me personally and every other pastor I've talked to. Maybe you have the same way, adrenaline, some adrenaline rush perhaps. 
But maybe it's something like that. Being in the, being in the presence of the glory of God somehow made them heavy. Um, maybe it's symbolic, others suppose, how the disciples, when they're supposed to be doing other things, it shows they're, they're, they're always missing the point. They're sleeping when they should be soaking it up. Then they became fully awake when they saw his glory and the two men stood with them. So Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about being eyewitnesses to his glory. That's a, that's a helpful text to read. 2 Peter, verse, uh, 2 Peter 1 verses 16 to 21. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, but then he goes on to tie it to we are witnesses to his glory on the mountain of of the transfiguration. So I was referring to, to this event that they saw it. And as the men were parting from him, so they were walking off or stepping back into the zipper, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Which we get that hymn, "'Tis good Lord to be here." Which is ironic because they, they get rebuked for saying the wrong thing. And we, that's the word that we sing. Oops. Oh, well. <laughs> it's well loved, so we have to sing it. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, why can we suppose that Peter saying it's good that we're here, let's make some tents? What do you think? The word tent, by the way, skene, it's the same for tabernacle, the Lord made flesh and tabernacled among us. So the idea of God coming into the flesh as though it's a tent over him, um, it's the same word there as well. But this tabernacle of the divine presence on top of this mountain, why would it be good? Why would Peter want to stay on the mountain? Let's put it like that. So, Just, yeah, stay, stay in the moment. And, um, and if somebody, if somebody else say something similar over here? He have to right. So you're on top of the mountain. You have God in his, his glory, uh, shining, dazzling apparel. Heaven is there. What is Jesus? Remember, eight days after these sayings, what were the sayings? The cross. And then now they, and, and, in, and again, in Matthew's accounting, Peter had said, no, Jesus, let this not be. He's rebuked. And now eight days, about eight days later, we're, Jerusalem's down there, but here we are. Not, Jesus is not being killed and things are going pretty well. Let's stay here. Uh, this refusal of the cross, trying to have God according to his majesty and glory, apart from the cross. We're understanding God as majesty and glory only, apart from the cross. It's interesting, like that's, when you try to picture Jesus as king, that's him, it's, it's, this, it's the transfigured Jesus. And yet Jesus wants to be known as king with a crown of thorns. He's most king on the cross, that's his throne. And as, as Pontius Pilate even wrote above his head, the king of the Jews. So in theology, we refer to this sometimes as the theology of the cross in contrast to the theology of glory. So the theology of glory is this 
It's this attempt to try to have God apart from the cross. So we, we interpret the love, may put it this way, the theology of glory would look for the love of God according to earthly blessing, things going well. So on the top of Mount Transfiguration, things were going well. I want, I want that in life, and I want to know God according to that. But the theology of the cross teaches us the opposite, that God teaches, show, reveals his love to us, not in earthly blessings, but on the cross of Jesus in suffering. And then from that, we actually, our own suffering is filled up with more meaning as well. That's why Paul, Paul is able to say that all things work together for good for those who love him. Even our suffering, we're given to see it, as hard as it is to say, our suffering is, as Christians, we're given to see it as a gift from a benevolent God who loves us and is working this tragedy out for good in some way that we don't know. Because we know he's not punishing us. We know it's not his wrath because the wrath of God has been poured out where? On the cross. So he's not mad at me. He's not punishing me. He loves me. And there, so when I'm facing up to suffering, I am able to say God works good through suffering because he worked the greatest good through the cross itself. And so it transforms our view of suffering and our tolerance for suffering in the Christian life and able to see suffering not as a sign of God's absence. But that's, according to our flesh, that's often what we deduce. That God, if God loved me, then things would be working out better. And yet that's not what he says to Jesus. Right? Certainly loves Jesus, but it's through the cross that good comes. Uh, so that's the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. And that's ultimately what, we're, what the disciples are going to struggle with for the rest of chapter 9 and really up to the resurrection. It's this ongoing desire for the Jesus of glory versus Jesus on the cross. Not knowing what they said, let's make a tent and stay here. Verse 36, I had this, I actually thought I was going to finish chapter 9 today. It's not going to occur. As he was saying these things, verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Anyone read Stephen King's There's Something in the Mist? Don't ever do that. <laughs> or anything by Stephen King, for that matter. Uh, but so this, this, the cloud... Is there at Mount Sinai in Exodus 13, Exodus 40? So whenever Moses is in the presence of God, there's this cloud symbolizing the divine presence. Also, a pillar of the, the people of Israel followed the presence. They were, they were led by the presence of God through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire, fire by night. That's a, from the, that's... That's right. Uh, they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, again, it's got to be James Earl Jones. This is my son, my chosen one. Hear him. Where have we heard that? 
in the baptism of Jesus. We get the same voice from the Father. This is my son. Uh, this is my son, my chosen one. Hear him. And then when the voice had spoken, this is, a, I think, one of the most profound moments in the text. The voice had spoken. Jesus was found alone. Jesus manos. Mono Jesus is the Greek. Uh, he's, it's just Jesus. Not Jesus in all the glory with the shining face and the dazzling white apparel. Not Moses and Elijah. Not this greatness, but only Jesus in his weakness and humility. And I think it's in Matthew's account that he actually bends down and touches them. Don't be afraid, he says to the disciples. Uh, and gets them to get up and they walk off the mountain with Jesus only. And Jesus comes off the mountain and heads to the cross, uh, which we see in verse uh, 40, 51, I believe, which we're not going to get to yet today. So we'll disconnect. Unfortunately, we'll disconnect the two. I was hoping to hit. So off the transfiguration, he, set, he comes off the mountain. He sets his face toward Jerusalem and he's headed to the cross. That's why the significance of talking to Moses and Elijah about what's about to happen. It's only a few months after this. Only a few months pass before he gets to the cross. Uh, let's see. The voice had spoken. Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Why? <laughs> That's right. People would think they were crazy, huh? Uh, but also, I mean, last week we talked about this too. Jesus is always telling them not to, don't tell people this stuff yet. And in part it's because, for one, the disciples themselves are misunderstanding Jesus as they wanted Jesus of glory instead of Jesus on the cross. The disciples themselves, if they're missing the point, then everybody's going to be missing this point. And so if, if this message gets out prematurely, then it's going to really start to get in the way of Jesus carrying out his what he's trying to accomplish before the cross. In fact, the cross might come too early. So Jesus is trying to teach a lot. As we're gonna find out uh, in next week's study, we'll see how Jesus himself is saying, uh, he gets frustrated with the disciples. And he's like, how much longer am I gonna be with you? And what he's saying is, I'm not gonna be here much longer. You guys really need to get this. <laughs> Running out of time here. Uh, and they told no one, and, but it doesn't say that they actually do tell people. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this. We wouldn't have Luke. Um, and also 2 Peter 1, again, I mentioned, uh, Peter's, that after the cross, then they start, they, they let everybody know about this. And they, and they see the significance of it. They didn't see before. They didn't understand it before. Any comments or questions on the transfiguration? They come off. So Jesus was talking about his departure. He, so he just talked about his cross, how he's going to have to die. Then they, they hear it from Moses and Elijah. They're coming off the mountain of transfiguration as Jesus heads to the cross. And right away, uh, after they heals this unclean spirit, uh, they start arguing about who's the greatest. The, the disciples are constantly struggling. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, I understand you have to die, but ultimately the kingdom is about power and glory. So I want a high place in your kingdom. Tom. Yeah, the, the, the commentators are kind of divided on this. So some would say 
that it has to do, let's see, we'll flip back to it. Verse 27, but I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Like just from uh, the Concordia commentary and others, this seems to be the predominant view is that the coming of the kingdom of God is referring to his, oh, what makes him a king is the crown, him being on the cross, but tied together with the cross is his cross, resurrection and ascension. So in that sense, he's referring to all the disciples who are standing in front of him. And they're, gonna, they're gonna witness all these things. The, the coming of his kingdom in its fullness is him being seen as the king of the Jews there on the cross. Um, but I don't think you're out of line, Tom. I, mean, I think it's fair to be able to say maybe it's him as king on the Mount of Transfiguration. That would make sense when he says, there are some standing among you instead of saying all of you will not taste death until you see. But some isn't, doesn't rule out all. Yeah, good point. Anything else? So the, the, the gospel lesson for the transfiguration we had, it's like the last Sunday of Epiphany before Lent. And so it's this, there's a lot of symbolism there too. As you finish the Epiphany season and the Epiphany is uh, from the Greek epiphanos, the light shined upon so during his epiphany, Jesus is manifested or revealed in his divine glory and power in various ways. The wedding at Cana, miracles, some of his teachings like that. And then at the last, at the end of the season of epiphany, we get this hinge from transfiguration into Lent. As now Jesus comes off the mountain of transfiguration, he sets his face on the cross sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And then we get this, from our, from our standpoint, this 40-day march of, of the cross. And there's this, this understanding here of the, the theology of the cross that we reflect upon in the season of Lent as we're reflecting upon the cross, both our need for the cross, most importantly, our, our need for the cross, and then Christ, Christ fulfilling that need uh, with his death on the cross as he only dies for sinners it brings us to repentance that we would confess our sin and our need for him. I don't think it would be wise for me to jump into the next section with one minute left. Um, so that if, if your take home for today, I think would be the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. Getting that in our heads, because it's going to be in the backdrop in the, the, the disciples' confusion for the, for the upcoming few weeks here. And really, it continues to be our struggle in the flesh too. We get it because it's, it's, it's tr according to our lives in the flesh, it's hard for us to, to see that God loves us when things are not going well for us. And we want things to go well for us. And we also acknowledge that God is our loving father and he has the power to take care of us. He has the power to do these great things. And yet we're taught to pray to that Father, thy will be done. And so we, we pray for strength that we would be able to endure the crosses as they come and also recognize that as we have in the parable of the sower, remember the seed that falls on the rocky soil springs up quickly but dies because of the lack of, the lack of soil, the lack of depth of the roots. What kills the plant isn't really the lack of depth of root. It was the sun, Right? But yet what the plants need to grow? The sun. So, and Jesus himself says of that parable, it's the sun, the sun is the son of 
suffering. It is the cross. And, and it, if you've been through suffering, which all of us have in some ways, we see how it is certainly a trial to endure. And it tests our faith. But as the Lord brings us through trials, we can see how he's used that trial to draw us closer to himself and to deepen our roots and to strengthen our faith in him. All right, next week we'll pick up with verse 37. The Lord be with you.